9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I am coming to you from somewhere outside of New York City, where it's very sunny and pretty, um, as we get here towards the end of June in New York City, of course, this being the time of the week that it is, we are joined by my co-host, Ryan Goodman. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing pretty well, David. Thanks. Ryan, of course, of NYU Law School and Just Security. And uh, also, because it's this time of the week and because we're very fortunate, we're joined as usual, by Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, practicing physician, formerly of the Obama White House and a Senate staffer. How are you today, Kavita? Very, 78 degrees in D.C., low humidity, doing good. It's very, it's very, it's very, very nice. And uh, we are also joined by our friend and partner in pain, Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute, one of the country's leading um, experts on democracy and its gradual demise. Hi, Norm. How are you doing? Uh, David, I'm okay. Uh, as are you, I can see. Well, <laughs> yeah. And I'm, in rank choice voting uh, for uh, programs <laughs> of this sort, I give you a one, a two, and a three. Uh, <laughs> maybe Norm can be the only person who actually understands that process. <laughs> you know, all I know is that in New York City, where I live, if we didn't have ranked choice voting, we'd be down to a runoff between a terrible candidate, Eric Adams, and a great candidate, Maya Wiley, but it's not mm-hmm. going to turn out that way. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm at the moment not a particularly big fan of ranked choice voting. Um, so I've got a question to kick things off. Um, it's something I've been thinking about. I actually have a column coming out this weekend in the Daily Beast, which deals with this a little bit. Um, and I'm going to pose it to Norm and then Brian and Kavita, you can comment and follow up and we'll take it where it goes. But, um, you know, I think all of us, if we were given a, a, a chance, would say we ought to um, reform the filibuster because if we don't reform the filibuster, as this past week has shown, we are not going to be able to pass things like meaningful um, voter rights um, legislation uh, or, frankly, a lot of other meaningful stuff. And also the filibuster is kind of undemocratic, has an unsavory history, and it's long overdue for time to to go. And um, passing that kind of legislation and getting rid of the filibuster are top the list of lots of folks like ourselves who thought about this. Um, and I would argue it's not going to happen. You know, we're not going to get filibuster reform and, or it seems real, real unlikely. And, uh, that means we're not going to get that, those, those, those voter protection laws that we need. Um, and that therefore perhaps it's time to think about a different strategy. Now I will conclude my question. Um, which may not sound like a question, it may sound more like a speech, but it really is a question, take my word for it. 
Um, I'll conclude my question by saying, in the White House, they've they've seemed to have concluded the same thing. They've concluded that um, the the uh, uh, voter uh, protection legislation is not going to pass. Uh, they didn't they didn't think it really had a chance, and that their only real path towards protecting democracy and um, uh, uh, maintaining a, a majority is by actually passing legislation like an infrastructure bill, like a reconciliation package to complement that, big things that are broadly popular, um, and that that combined with grassroots efforts and a bunch of other things are the best shot we've got. What do you think all that, Norm? So uh, I would say I'm going to disagree to a significant uh, degree. Um, Not completely because... We are in uh, dangerous space, but I have a different interpretation of this. Although I will also say that I wish the White House had uh, put more urgency on this and many other measures. Mm -hmm. And I will also say that I'm kind of stunned that right now it looks like the Senate's going to go out of session very soon Mm -hmm. and not come back until July 12th which is business as usual at a time when we can't afford business as usual. And especially because we have a 50-50 Senate that could turn into something very different and much more ugly, even as we speak. All it takes is one senator to get hit by a bus or to uh, get um, a very virulent strain of COVID. Uh, or to just die, and we have a few who are, uh, you know, in a dangerous age group. Um, so there's no urgency. But having said that, the strategy is a different one, and I don't think it's entirely out of the question that it will happen. And that strategy we saw play out first with the filibuster on the January 6th commission, which gave Republicans everything they wanted, and they still filibustered it. Uh, on the uh, For the People Act, and not just the For the People Act as it was originally conceived, which was a grab bag of many, many things, but even the refusal to consider the stripped down but still potent version that had been put forward by Joe Manchin. What I expect is going to be soon a vote on the Manchin-Toomey uh, gun bill uh, with background checks or something close to it that will likely be filibustered and killed. And all of this is geared towards showing Joe Manchin that, yeah, you can get a deal on infrastructure, albeit one that may not play out and one that's conditioned on getting that robust uh, reconciliation package. But on the big things, they're not going to go along. And it's not like they've hidden it from you. Mitch McConnell made it clear that he's putting 100% of his efforts behind blocking Joe Biden's agenda. And John Barrasso, uh, a key member of the Republican leadership team, said, never mind making Joe Biden a one-term president. I want to make him a one-half-term president. (laughs) So all of that is aimed at getting Manchin and a tougher sell, I have to say, Kristen Sinema, who's also made it clear that she resents the fact that Manchin's getting all of this attention, uh, that we can reform the filibuster and actually restore it to putting the burden on the minority where it belongs instead of uh, eliminating it or weakening it, as both Manchin and Cinema have said they simply will not do. So 
there's still a chance of this happening. And I would say the chance is better than, you know, 20 or 30 percent. It may even be a 50-50 chance. I hope I'm right. And I hope you're wrong. Well, um, that's probably uh, betting on you to be right and me to be wrong is probably a pretty good bet, generally speaking. (laughs) Um, uh, But, uh, you know, I I would say, you know, in my calling around, uh, and just as a quick follow-up to this, it's not just mansion and cinema. And, and you know, you can see that. There was an interview with uh, Diane Feinstein, you know, the other day, yesterday, <laughs> in which she said, oh, I don't see any threat to democracy. I would add, by the way, and, and, and I don't mean to be unfair in doing this, that the interview I saw with her, she was nearly incoherent. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it goes back to your prior point. But, you know, I've seen suggestions that three, four, five, six Democrats may be uncomfortable with it. And, I, you know, I'm just saying, you know, this is so important that it is really important for us to be realistic about what's possible, lest we devote our efforts in a direction that is going to come up empty and, and then not devote our attention to the things we can actually do. Well, let me just respond to that by saying um, there's a real problem with Dianne Feinstein, although uh, if uh, 49 other Democrats sign on, uh, she's indicated earlier that she would be open to some change. Um, It's how you define the change. And we're talking about, and Manchin has spoken favorably about a few things. One, an idea that I promoted for a decade and worked on with Al Franken which is to flip the numbers. 60 required to end debate, which puts all the burden on the majority, to 41 required to continue it, and they have to be on the floor, um, which puts the burden on the minority. And if you do that and you have a tough majority leader, uh, somebody who is as tough as Mitch McConnell has been, and that may or may not be the case, you can uh, really make their lives uncomfortable and uh, get some things done. Another is to reduce the number from 60 to 55. I don't think that would be enough. But if you reduce it to 55 and make it 55% of those present and voting, or simply move to a present and voting standard, you're accomplishing something. Because then if, uh, you know, if it's a 60 vote uh, hurdle, a a three-fifths hurdle, and 20 of them don't show up because it's on a Monday night or um, on a Sunday at three in the morning, You only need 48 to end debate and move to a vote. So there are ways of making something happen that give us a fighting chance of getting voting reform that I know and knowing the the reluctant senators, whether it's Chris Coons or or, uh, John Tester um, or uh, Angus King, uh, all of whom I've talked to about this in the past, uh, I'm not concerned about it. Cinema is another matter. Yeah, as her as her Washington Post column demonstrated through its incoherence and bad logic, Kavita. Yeah, so uh, I love it when Norm starts talking about like parliamentarian kind of policies <laughs> and and talking. About, it just makes me so happy. Although I not happy that uh, we have you to. Are. Do. 
as nerdy as it they, is. Well, I, I was hoping you'd talk about the McConnell rule and debt ceilings and some very interesting. Let's exciting, get to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I actually do want to get to it because I think that it's all kind of symptoms of the same like illness. I love Norm to hear your perspective on, and you've you've written about it previously, but take me out of DC, walk through. Let's say you're right and David's wrong. Um, just take me through kind of what you see playing out still kind of at state levels. It's clear to me whether it's critical race theory or, you know, masks or something else that just there will be kind of what I call hacks of all sorts to deal with curbing voting rights. I mean, it's something that feels like it's coming to the fore lately, but truly has been developing for decades. So, um, take me, just Norm, what is your sense of, okay, whoever is right outside of DC, what does this translate to? And the reason I ask is because, Norm, I've, I've for reasons that are unclear, people have had me talking to young people to try to get them vaccinated. And I said, the only thing I have in common with young people is that I've got genes that are as old as some of them, but that's <laughs> that's like all it is. But it's been interesting because when we talk about vaccines and trust, then we actually start talking about like their view of what a democracy is. And they're growing up and this is what they think a democracy is. This is like, and, and not this like 48 to 55 or not, this dysfunction writ large is what they think democracy is. So that just kind of kind of punched me in the gut a little bit. So take yeah. us, you know, just anyway, react to that and please talk about the McConnell rule and debt ceilings if you want to as well. Uh, so we're in a dire place. Um, and uh, if we got the For the People Act in toto, we would still be in a dire place. Um, I'm very uh, uh, hopeful that if we can get some change, that along with uh, some version that protects voting rights, we get uh, this uh, new bill that's being introduced by Raphael Warnock that actually counters the worst part of most of these voter suppression laws that are going through states from Iowa and uh, Montana all the way down through Texas and Florida and uh, Georgia and uh, many, uh, many other states. Because if it's simply voter suppression, draconian ID laws and the like, there are ways to counter it um, and sometimes even to, uh, you know, uh, motivate your voters even more. But if you're letting state legislatures or uh, Republican bodies overturn the results of elections or threaten local election officials with jail time uh, if they uh, follow the law and uh, encourage voting, we're in a different place. And it's a place that would be uh, more akin to uh, Orban's Hungary or Sisi's uh, Egypt um, or Putin's Russia or Uh, Erdogan's Turkey than what we're used to. Uh, And we're a ways from there. The critical race theory thing, I will bet you that you don't have three Republicans in Congress, much less the commentators on television, who have the slightest clue what critical race theory is. What they like about it is it's got the word race in it, because the entire Republican strategy for winning down the road besides overturning the results if they don't win, is to use race as a divisive issue to motivate their voters. Mm -hmm. And we know that race is a big motivator and an even bigger one now. 
So they've picked up on something that has absolutely no meaning otherwise to turn it into not just a wedge issue, but the big racial uh, wedge issue. And we're going to see continuing divisions in the society that are extremely combustible on that front. Those are harder to deal with even than the filibuster. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to have to do, we have a lot of work to do to get beyond that. Uh, The one good thing I would say about young people, besides saying that uh, David and I probably have genes older than you, Kavita, um, is that, uh, and, uh, you know, they've got bell bottoms and there are all kinds of terrible things. Um, is that uh, uh, the uh, young people, having been through some of this, also have begun to realize that there is one party and one cult. Mm -hmm. And what we see in voting preferences and voting behavior over the last three elections is that younger generations who are, on the whole, significantly more socially liberal than their uh, Mm -hmm. predecessors, Um, have voted Democratic in large numbers. Mm -hmm. And we know from a lot of the work done in political socialization that that's likely to make them Democrats for life. And that's another part of the reason why Republicans are acting with urgency, because they know that they've got an even bigger problem uh, down the road. So that's both good news and bad news. Uh, On the debt ceiling, we've known for a long time that a part of the Republican strategy has been to use the debt ceiling as a hostage uh, to try and bludgeon Democrats. They did this regularly Mm -hmm. in the Obama years. And Mitch McConnell said at one point, it's a hostage worth taking. Um, They would throw the entire country over the fiscal cliff um, if uh, necessary without a second's thought. And you know, we're the only country um, uh, among significant democracies or other large countries that uh, requires you to increase the ceiling on your national debt on a periodic basis. So at one point when there was a Republican president and uh, the Republicans didn't want to be embarrassed because both sides have played political games with the debt ceiling, when the other party has the presidency, they're all for fiscal responsibility. But they were also responsible enough to you know, save us from the brink. But to avoid political discomfort, Mitch McConnell, when he was the Republican leader and the majority leader, instituted what became known as the McConnell rule. Right now, every time you approach uh, in our national debt that ceiling, you have to raise it with a vote in Congress and a, a resolution signed by the president. Uh, And if you don't, then the full faith credit of the United States is damaged and the consequences are dire ones. Uh, McConnell rule said the president can unilaterally raise the debt ceiling. Congress can then pass a resolution of disapproval, blocking it, but the president can veto that. And just like any bill, the veto has to be overridden by two thirds of both houses. In effect, the burden falls on the president, but it's extremely unlikely, indeed almost impossible, that two thirds of both houses would then uh, vote against it. So you take it out of the political realm entirely by doing it that way. And that's something that I surely hope Democrats will add to the reconciliation bill that they're doing that they can get through on a 50 vote uh, margin and take this 
away from being used cynically and dangerously and uh, absolutely irresponsibly as a uh, weapon uh, and a hostage. Um, I, is that enough McConnell rule for you, Kavita? <laughs> it's never enough, but yeah, never, it's, no, it's never uh, enough. But I don't think people, I, I, as 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 much as our deep state listeners know ins and outs, I actually don't think it gets enough attention because it did kind of almost cripple uh, the Obama administration, and that's how deals get cut so that you don't have this happen. But they end up being pretty bad deals and bridges to nowhere, et cetera. Coming yeah, up again very soon. Yeah, and by the way, Norm, I, I was you made me think back. And in ninth grade, I had a pair of jeans that were bell bottoms, and they had a big peace sign sewn on the butt. And I I used to wear them with a colorful Mexican poncho, which was the style at the time. I actually think that's in style now. Like so, that, you know, yeah, yeah, mom jeans, bell bottoms, wide legs. That's what you all the can kids sell are wearing. those jeans for a fortune now. Uh, you could, you could. Uh, yeah, Come on eBay I, if you still have what, them. What I, what I couldn't do probably is is fit into but in any <laughs> okay. event. You and me both do. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> um, Ryan. Um, I need to say something about jeans. Yeah, no, you, you can <laughs> go straight back to the McConnell rule where you want to be. No, I was the first kid in my high school to wear acid wash jeans. Which, oh, uh, Ryan. Which Ryan. I thought was very cool, but I was totally stigmatized for it until it caught on. <laughs> So, oh, so sad. Well, that's what happens to trendsetters, Ryan. Yeah, that's you, know, right. you pay the price uh, until people realize that it's really the big end thing. Yeah. Um, so I want to um, circle back to part of your answer to Kavita about more general um, ways in which some of the debate is being framed around part of it, the critical race theory issue. And, you, and thinking as you were describing it, Norm, uh, down the line, but into the summer. So. One is probably an increase in levels of violent crime, which will be framed through uh, racist lenses on the Republican side. Yeah. Uh, second is the critical race theory, which I guess Bannon was quoted as saying, or he said in some interview, quote, this is the Tea Party to the 10th power, uh, is this idea of mobilizing around the thought that critical race theory is a threat and being taught. Um, in local schools and things like that. And it's not just Bannon. Um, so the piece by um, Paul Waldman in the, the Post also refers to the fact that the Heritage Foundation has opened up this page on their website about critical race theory. So it's not just fringe, it's getting to be broader than that. So you've got crime, critical race theory, that they think they've got something there. Um, and then obviously the border um, with migration issues, which we've seen and you know, Western uh, democratic countries has been one potentially giant uh, way of sweeping in uh, nationalists um, and authoritarian uh, tendencies. So what do you, what is the solution to trying to beat back some of that um, in your mind? So, well, one, certainly the crime issue has emerged in a way that we haven't seen it for a couple of decades. And, uh, you know, we were talking earlier a little bit about the New York mayoral race. Uh, Eric Adams is um, a, an unsettling uh, mm -hmm. figure in a whole host of ways. Um, his uh, not coming clean about where he lives, his saying that if we can do remote uh, teaching, well, you know, a teacher could have hundreds of students 
Um, and then barring some reporters who had written bad things about him uh, from his uh, election eve uh, uh, party, uh, all of that, among other things, make him problematic. But he is more likely than not to be the next New York mayor. And there's only one reason. He's a former cop who stands up for the NYPD. And that tells you something. This is New York City, after all. Now, having said that, we also know that the defund the police slogan, which is the second favorite uh, behind critical race theory for Republicans right now, was used heavily in the um, uh, special election held in New Mexico to replace Deb Holland, uh, who's in the cabinet now, and it didn't work very well there. The Democrats have to spend some time and effort focusing on this, and I think they have not done the right job in preempting this by focusing relentlessly on reforming the police. Um, now, you know, this is one area actually that Kavita and I have talked about in the past with a completely different context. Kavita and I have talked about this in the past uh, in relationship to the mental health issue because mental health, criminal justice reform, and police reform now form a kind of uh, a perfect storm. You can pull them all together. And what we've learned, and, you know, I've uh, been engaged in this because of my work in this area, the documentary that uh, we spearheaded on the uh, what they've done in Miami-Dade County, Florida, because of a remarkable judge, uh, Steve Leifman, that's transformed the police department by bringing in crisis intervention training. Mm -hmm. And it's not just uh, the interactions with people with serious mental illness. Uh, now in Miami, um, if you react to a, uh, an incident by escalating, you're viewed as the wimp. If you get out of it by de-escalating, you're viewed as the smart one because uh, neither you nor anybody else got hurt. And there are ways and lots of ways, I think, of reforming policing without uh, attacking policing. At the same time, you know, I saw several interviews today with this uh, Capitol policeman who was nearly beaten to death who has uh, been spurned over and over by the Republican House leader, Kevin McCarthy, who's now lied about whether he was open to meeting with him. And the reactions of Republicans, including a significant number who voted against the Congressional Gold Medal for these police who put themselves on the line for all of them, tells you that the uh, uh, Blue Lives Matter movement for many of them is simply a cynical reaction to try and drive a wedge here, but it's a wedge that is much more potent because clearly violent crime is rising. And when it does, people are sensitive to it. And uh, President Biden, I think with a new initiative may help to counter that a little bit, but you know it's gonna be uh, a, a major uh, issue uh, out there. And I'm uh, so old, I can't remember the second part of your question, Ryan. Um, so it's the, it's the confluence of these yeah. things together. Yeah, the critical race theory idea. Do you think that they've uh, actually latched onto something significant there, I guess would be another way of putting it. So one of the things we know from a lot of the uh, in-depth social science research done on the 2016 elections, the 2020 elections, is that the economic anxiety factor took a backseat mm -hmm. to the race and culture factor. 
that is, as it has been for so long in our history, the dominant strain and theme. And it's playing on those anxieties of people being displaced that brings out that populist nativism and racism. And that now, of course, in this uh, modern age is explicit. Um, You know, the law and order theme that uh, Nixon and George Wallace pursued the Southern strategy had at least um, a patina of respectability that they tried to attach to it by making the racial theme indirect. There's no more indirect. Now it is very, very direct. And that is extraordinarily dangerous in this society. I want to point out something else. There's a, a new poll that the Democracy Fund has done that is extraordinarily Uh, unsettling. 68% of self-identified Republicans say today that uh, Donald Trump won the election. Mm -hmm. 62% say that Joe Biden is not a legitimate president. And 46% say that it is perfectly appropriate for state legislatures to overturn the results of elections if they don't come out the way they want. That's almost a majority of Republicans in the country. We are on the cusp of something that could turn this country into effectively an autocracy and an autocracy that would have such a strong racially divisive element to it that it could be really, really bad. And that's why we have to not only try and combat that as much as we can, we have to find new ways of talking to people and hoping we can move away from the media people who are complicit in this and who are themselves accelerants, the Tucker Carlson's uh, of mm-hmm. the world, the Laura Ingram's of the world. What we're now seeing on uh, OAN and uh, Newsmax, um, which, uh, takes us in a very bad direction that has people, including many who we probably interact with on a daily basis, but who believe this because they hear it from what should be reputable sources and because it's reinforced by the vast majority of elected Republicans, that we've got to try and change that around. But it's also why there is more urgency to getting some of these democracy reforms in place. Finally, on this front, let me note that one of the worst offenders here is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who's now trying to get in Florida a regular uh, interrogation done of people teaching in public universities and uh, other uh, educational institutions to make sure that they're on the right path. Where have we seen that before? We know what societies we have, and we know uh, what novels like 1984, where you have that as one of the major uh, themes. We're we're not in a good place when it comes to elected officials uh, uh, on the Republican side. Yeah, the DeSantis legislation uh, uh, proposal uh, would require students as well as faculty to identify their political leaning um, because that the, they would withhold funding theoretically from schools in which there was not a balance in political views among uh, the, the faculty and the students, which is Nazi Germany. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, because it's Nazi Germany and because so many of these things pose such a, a critical risk, uh, you know, I want to say that I joined Kavita and Ryan uh, in, in hoping that you're right and I'm wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'm on the norm side of the equation, <laughs> not the David side of the equation here. But having said that, because these things are so serious, the reason I'm thinking about it is because you might be wrong. And because we need to think about what is plan B. And if, if Joe Biden sat with you and he said, look, we're not going to pass this legislation and we're not going to get the reform we want in the filibuster. Mm -hmm. As I look to 2022, that's going to make it harder to win. And if we lose in 2022, the house of cards is really going to come down. What do we do? Where do we focus? Do we focus on the grassroots? Do we focus on funding the mark? Goliaths and others of this world to challenge these things in the court? Do we give everybody an app that lets them know when their polling place is open? Do we, um, you know, do we, you know, try to be more by, uh, you know, try, try to do uh, more bipartisan legislation to win people over? Um, you know, if, if we can't produce the reforms that we need, what is the political path that the president and the Democratic Party ought to be going on? Um, or or we, do we just throw up our hands and, and, and you know, seek Canadian residency? Um, Canada could be Australia. New Zealand's very nice. Um, it's not as know, easy as one thinks. I tried. No, it's in, not. I tried in 16. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't easy. Um, <laughs> Well, fortunately for me, I have both Canadian roots and uh, good, uh, uh, important friends in Australia. But having said that, uh, I'm, I'm very worried about 2022. A lot of people are focused on 2024. 2022 is a key to 2024. And one of the fears that I have is with these laws that enable partisans to overturn election results and throw out votes, that we could have a Senate where... Uh, two or three Senate races that Democrats win are rejected within those states. And uh, then it becomes a question of whether, as the Democrats still hold a narrow majority in the Senate, if they still do have 50, uh, what action they take, including deciding not to seat some of those members. You know, we could end up with um, a, a big crisis at that point. But one of the things that I can see very clearly here is that the Republican strategy for 2024 is to first try and get one of those houses of Congress and then make sure that nobody, if it's not going to be the Republican winning, gets to the magic number of 270 electoral votes so that they can send the election to the House of Representatives, which votes by state where even if Democrats have a majority, there will be a majority of Republican state delegations, uh, almost certainly. And they can win the presidency that way in a fashion that at one level you could say is narrowly within the bounds of the law and the Constitution, but that would be completely illegitimate. And that's a big fear um, that uh, we might be able to mobilize our voters 
the other fear that I have right now for 2022, besides the illegitimacy that we can see in so many of these states, is uh, getting Democratic mo- uh, voters of all types motivated. We know that a good part of the reason that uh, presidents' parties tend to lose seats overwhelmingly in elections in the past, in the House especially, but also the Senate, is that there's a demoralization of the president's partisans. There's this sort of unrealistic expectation when you have the White House, and especially if you also have both houses of Congress, that now you're going to get what you've aimed for for all these decades. And while uh, the first few months of the Biden administration have been truly impressive, uh, you know, the rescue plan is transformative, especially if they can continue to move forward with the child tax credit, for example. If we get some of these ambitious infrastructure plans, including the human infrastructure part, it will be quite amazing. Um, But we could still very easily have, and we're already seeing it, either the progressive uh, base of the party, including many of the voters of color, deciding that it didn't play out the way they wanted and they're just not going to turn out. And the Republicans are just wonderful at stoking the anger in their base to get them to turn out. And of course, even without the illegitimate acts, the biases built into the Constitution give them the ability to win elections even when they don't have a majority of the votes. You know, the other problem we have is that uh, the the constitutional structure is heavily biased in favor of small uh, and more rural states. So the Senate already is a minority body. Partisan gerrymandering that's gone on in the House has accentuated the advantage that Republicans have there. And with these narrow majorities, you know, even if we don't take into account these terrible draconian laws and the manipulation of the system, uh, it's easy to imagine the Republicans winning a majority. And I was saying that, uh, you know, the partisans of the president tend to be demoralized. The uh, partisans outside tend to be angry because uh, it's worse than they thought it would be. Playing the race card is going to make that even more uh, appropriate. And if uh, people who want to save the system and give the one hope that we have that ultimately the Republican cult turns back into a more traditional party, it is they have to lose for the third time in a row in 2022 to be jolted into believing that maybe they have to change the way they've been doing things. Even that's a long-term project. But if they win one house, even if we somehow restore the system down the road, we can't survive for very long with one traditional problem-solving party, whatever its broader ideology, and one party that's dedicated to blowing everything up and that has uh, no philosophy but simply Uh, a theology built around the personality uh, of a cult. Yeah, no, no question about that. Um, And uh, I I think it's an interesting thing here. I'm just out uh, spending a few days by the beach and the number of cars that I see and houses that I see that have Trump signs up. Now, this is New York state um, after the election, uh, uh, prominently displayed uh, is a sign that you know the, the 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 battles we've been fighting are not over. We've got about five, 
seven, eight minutes left. Um, and I'd like to give Kavita and Ryan a chance to uh, ask you another question, but I'm actually going to go back on that because I want to ask Kavita a question that follows up on what Norm is saying and then we'll go to Ryan. Um, because we look at 2022, one of the things that I think a lot of us have assumed is that COVID is over, mm -hmm. that we've got it under control. But we really only have it under control in blue states. And in red states, we don't. Blue states were hitting the vaccination targets and red states were not. If you look at the five or six worst off states in terms of new cases, they're all red states. And I, I believe, and, and you know better than I, but in the past week, several of them I've seen growth 20, 30, 40, 50% in the number of cases. Is the COVID story going to be a factor in 2022 or not? Uh, I think it, yes. I'm not sure how it'll play out. And I'll just give you uh, a good friend of mine who's a chief medical officer of a hospital in Missouri. Uh, the hospitals in, in Joplin and Springfield, and for those of you who don't know where it is, uh, you can get the map out. And so it's also kind of close to Oklahoma. Um, those markets, those hospitals, he said their COVID wards are now full again. And so they had, in some of the counties near there, only a 20% vaccination rate. So he said the predominant number of people in the hospital are young, unvaccinated, and but there also are some vaccinated folks. And then if you kind of look at what's happening in the rest of the world, COVID becomes a story that affects the elections for three reasons. One is the kind of obvious one I think that you're hinting at with me that could this come back, surge, not to the degree that we've had this past year, but certainly to where parts of our lives might be restricted in some way or that we might be wearing masks again or not wearing masks again. The second is just what's happened to this economy. I mean, you're, you've heard Norm, I think you've talked, all of us have been trying to look at like economic data and, you know, parse one cause. Is it, it's COVID, but is it, um, you know, the generous unemployment benefits, the, which is the Republican talking point all the way to, you know, on Twitter, I'm sure you saw it, David, there's, you know, 600,000 people die. That's part of the workforce, which is actually not accurate. Then that, But that will affect 2022. How can it not? And then the third is also kind of the downstream effects with prices in healthcare. I, I mean, we've been pretty uh, muted to it in the last year because of what's happened. But if you recall every other election, and I desperately without wanting to, but can easily recall our 2012 midterms and, um, I'm sorry, the 2010 um, midterms and kind of the devastation that that wreaked on, on, and that was healthcare, that was the Affordable Care Act. And so I do think, I do think COVID has its effects through those many channels. Okay, just thought that was useful context. Ryan, comment or a question for Norm? Sure. So I guess I want to shift gears to something else in the news from the past week, which is Attorney General Garland's statement about looking back at a potential wrongdoing in the Justice Department in the Trump administration. So uh, just to get a sense of where you land on this, uh, because people are landing in different places. Um, and then I guess the data points we have are that the Attorney General issued a statement in which he went out of his way in the statement to say that he has, in a certain sense, appointed um, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco to quote, that she's quote, working on surfacing potentially problematic matters 
deserving high-level review, end quote, which does mean that she's looking back at potential investigations and the like in which they need to uh, do a major course correction, let's say, or clean house in some regard. But then when asked a question by a reporter as to whether or not he'd be doing an investigation on the politicization of the Justice Department, he said no. Um, and, he, and the quote there is, he said, quote, I don't want the department's career people hmm. to think that a new group comes in and immediately applies a political lens, end quote. And he instead invoked the inspector general um, having, uh, in, having ongoing investigations as though that's a substitute for what uh, the Justice Department itself might independently do. Um, so just to get a sense of where you land, uh, some people are saying that he's the wrong you know, person for the job. Others are saying, give him time. There's good things to come on accountability. Um, what, you, what you're thinking at this point? It, it's mixed, frankly. I mean, one part of it is I know Merrick Garland. Uh, I view him as a friend. Um, he's a man of impeccable integrity. But it's very troubling that um, the loyalty to the Justice Department supersedes that larger set of issues of rot in the political system and the need, which I view as uh, absolute, to uh, hold people accountable for the wrongdoing that they've done. Um, you know, I take it to another level. I'm, I'm just writing a piece with a couple of uh, lawyers. Um, taking the D.C. bar to task. And I think bar associations in general, uh, you know, I will now applaud uh, the body in New York. It wasn't the bar association, it was the court that uh, has responsibility over the bar association that finally suspended the law license of the monster known as Rudy Giuliani, mm-hmm. um, which is long overdue. Um, but the D.C. bar took a complaint issued by a large group of the most prominent lawyers around, including four or five former presidents of the D.C. bar against Bill Barr, and a detailed, powerful uh, plea, and basically said, well, our policy is that if you are a prominent public figure and, and in the news, that's not what we do. That's just what they should be doing. It is the prominent figures that you need to hold to account. And when Merrick Garland said, I don't want the career people in the Justice Department uh, to react, um, my thought was the career people in the Justice Department want the House clean because the last administration despoiled it. And you can't let that go. Now, the other thing I would add is I understand that there's a, a, some delicacy here given the reality that the last administration was the most corrupt by far in the history of the country, probably more corrupt than every other administration combined, including uh, Teapot Dome and uh, everything else that we could imagine. It's hard to find a cabinet member who uh, doesn't deserve uh, some uh, reckoning uh, (laughs) across the board. Corruption, lying to Congress, uh, and, and more than that. Uh, not to mention the White House itself. And we know that Mark Meadows, for example, the chief of staff, was instrumental in trying to push uh, uh, the insurrection to the, to the next stage. You look at what Ivanka and Jared did, um, and not to mention Trump himself. But if you go after everybody who deserves it, 
it really does look like you're just punishing uh, your political enemies who lost. It looks like a banana republic in action. So how do you strike that balance? Maybe Lisa Monaco, um, working with career people, will do some of it. Certainly the public integrity section, the Southern District of New York are active in some of these areas, but I don't think it's enough. And I think the attorney general needs to look beyond what he's been doing. And yes, the integrity of the Justice Department matters, but frankly, if you let people off the hook for corrupting our political system, corrupting the legal system, protecting a lawless president, you're not doing any favors for the integrity of the Justice Department. Very well said, and certainly a subject for future discussions as we do not seem to be making progress uh, rapidly in that regard. Uh, Norm, it is always instructive to, uh, to uh, have you join us, uh, and we hope you will be back soon because we learn a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, who knows, maybe someday we'll be talking about the progress we've made um, but, uh, right, right, exactly. Maybe not. Um, uh, anyway, we will track it and we will have you back in the meantime. Um, uh, you know, be well and enjoy your summer. Everybody who has been listening, thanks for joining us. Uh, and, uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com for more information about what we've got upcoming, which is plentiful. Um, thank you, Kavita. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Norm. Thanks everybody for listening. And, Stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>